1: where I'm from, I guess people say, how are you doing everywhere? But I just added the y'all in there, which I say a lot now, by the way, I never said y'all when I was younger growing up in Tennessee, but it has found its way into my uh, vernacular. So I, I don't know why I don't, I don't sound Southern, but then the y'all just creeps out. I just It just feels very warm to me. How y'all doing? And I hope the answer is great. And if you're listening to this podcast, um, I know that during quarantine, your routines have been disrupted. So you're not you're probably not on public transportation. You're probably not going to the gym. You're probably not um, riding in your car, commuting to a job that you would normally go to. So I'm, so weirdly. It might actually be a little more challenging to find time to listen to podcasts, which you do to probably help kill time while you do other things. So if you are listening to this, I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. It really means a lot to me. So um, let's talk about events. That are going on in the ID10T community, events at ID10T.com, like Randy who writes, I created something to find out what happens when you mash up Star Wars canon with a classic public domain movie from 1932. The Most Dangerous Game, in parentheses, A Star Wars Story, is an audio fan production from Seriously Strange Audio Theater. It sounds amazing. Our humble troupe, which I co-founded in Sacramento with Sharon Menifee in 2019, produces audio theater as a labor of love on a micro-budget with a cast and crew of volunteers. After producing three comedy shorts, The Most Dangerous Game is our first full-length play. The production was a true team effort, with me writing and directing, Sharon coordinating and casting and doing the sound design, and local voice actors bringing the characters to life. For more information, check out theater.com. And the uh, you can do slash MDG for most dangerous game. So uh, slash MDG. That sounds fantastic. Thank you, Randy. Uh, well, well done. The the mashup thing. I just I'm I'm a sucker for it every time. It's just to to create a multi layered thing like that and and give the world something new. Um, good job. Good job, kiddo. As us older folks say. I'm not that much older. Actually, I don't know how old you are, but I'm assuming I'm older than you are. So good job, kiddo! Um, all right, this episode is Rebecca Hall, who is a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. She'll, she'll win an Oscar someday, <laughs> definitely, for acting or directing. She's directing now. Uh, we talk a lot about that, too. So she'll, she's, she's going to have at least one of those fancy gold statues, I predict. You heard it here. Um, she, you, you've seen Rebecca Hall in a million things, uh, The Prestige, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, Frost Nixon, uh, Dorian Gray, Iron Man 3, Transcendence. Um, she's in, uh, this really, really cool anthology series on Amazon right now called Tales from the Loop. Um, and it's, it's a series, it's like each episode is, like an anthology series, but they all revolve around the same area, so the same town, so they're not disconnected stories. So um, you should definitely watch that. Now you got time to do that, so uh, watch that. Tales from the Loop. And uh, Rebecca was so wonderful to talk to. Again, video conferencing for the win. This has been spectacular. And just, I, I just walk nine feet from where my bedroom is to my office. To do work, I I don't hate that. I'm not gonna lie. I like doing these in person when they're possible. But I've really warmed up to this. It is really, really, really been great. So now I'm just throwing out names to the to the nice folks who book the podcast. Like, let's see about this person. This person doesn't matter where they are. We can do this as long as they have an internet connection. So thank you to Rebecca Hall for just being a splendid uh, conversation and uh, really, really. By the way, I also we talk about this a little bit too. As I've said before, it's really interesting to see like just sort of a slice of people's homes, home offices or whatever. And uh, I just have to give props. The color of blue in her office, her design aesthetic is really great. And the color of blue in her office was incredible she says the name of it in the podcast i can't remember what it is now i think maybe she said ugh, i can't remember what it is but she says it in the podcast and i'm gonna hunt it down because it is a gorgeous shade of blue and uh so here we go this is the id10t podcast number 1065 with rebecca hall
0: initiating id10t protocol
1: How are you? Oh, my God. That is the ideal background. It's a dark blue wall. It's just like, it's just such a cool, neutral, by the way, amazing color of blue, by the way. Amazing. It's a good
2: color of blue, yeah. It's a really good
1: color of blue. It is really nice. You can't see it, but in this sort of like pinstripey wallpaper, there is a strip of blue that is almost that identical color.
2: I believe it is not Farrow and Ball. I believe it's a copy of a Farrow and Ball color called Van Dyke blue or Dutch
1: something blue. I'm writing Van Dyke blue down. I'm <laughs> it's writing a very
2: blue. A very, this, this is our office room. It's, it's got a very, it's got
1: good blue, blue tones. And also you're wearing blue jeans and kind of like a blue. Yeah, color. I know. I
2: didn't, I didn't do it. I've done a couple of these today. I had to do a couple of on camera ones a couple of live T V ones, so I was making some, some something of an effort, I suppose. But, but I didn't good. actually think about the blue thing, but now you've now you've I must have on some unconscious level really. This
1: is the perfect like editorial photo shoot thing that's going on. It's like all the tones are sort of tied in. I mean my wife and I love like, you know, restoring houses and, and yes. getting all the sort of decoration. And so whenever I my see a colour that it. I like.
2: Yeah, I write boy. Oh yeah. you do? Mm-hmm. Love it.
1: Did you buy? Is that as? Is I assume you own the house you're living in.
2: Yes, this is our this is our principal. This is our house in Hudson, now in New York, where we live.
1: All right, and um, so was it when you bought it? Was it a bit of a fixer upper?
2: Yeah, it wasn't too bad. It was a bit sneaky. Like we we thought we were going to get you know the sort of typical old dilapidated beautiful farmhouse, and then do a whole number on it and we ended up getting a beautiful old farmhouse which happened to have been built in the 70s but based on a 1900s farmhouse design oh wow So it it looks old but it's got the guts of something more modern and the the you know there were no horrible surprises
1: oh that's fantastic
2: we kind of lucked out actually in that respect
1: you are so lucky
2: how about you do you did a big you did a big number
1: on it we 've done well the house we live in it was built in twenty eight and it's um it 's a historical house like it's it's it 's in the oh yeah and so it um, it 's in the mills act, which basically means that we can 't we wouldn 't but that we have to follow certain guidelines in order to keep it historical and we did there was a lot of stuff that we did in not a ton of stuff that we did inside but just over the years, other people had kind of done some things that we undid and then re mm. put back into that time. Right, period. right, right.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So that was, yeah. but we lived that in nice. it while that was happening. Which, if you don't have to do that, I don't
2: recommend. <laughs> it's Not to be recommended. No, I, mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's not pleasant. We did a little bit of that, but not a lot.
1: We it was that it was sort of that thing where when we first moved in, there, there was a constant shift of like, okay, now we're staying in this room because they're working on that part. We we kind of moved around the house until we you know until it was all done and uh living in
2: a cupboard in a bathroom. Yeah.
1: You're living in a cupboard, yes. It's very like Harry Potter and Privet Drive and we <laughs> <laughs> We're like in the cupboard and we just had this group of roommates who showed up <laughs> every morning at seven thirty and uh and we lived that way for a couple of years. Did you, were you able to do your work not in your, while you were living there? Yeah, we timed
2: it out quite well so that we were able to uh, just organize it just as we were both having to go somewhere else to do, you know, jobs.
1: Oh, that's good. That's good. And we're always,
2: we're always having to do that, actually. This is, this is probably the longest that we've ever spent at home altogether.
1: How are you yeah. doing with that?
2: We're doing all right, thank you for asking. How are you doing?
1: We're fine, I mean, we are sort of homebodies by nature, and so likewise. yeah. The, oh. like the, the, the drive I mean, I think it's just the idea of like that we can't go out, but the drive mm-hmm. to go out is not strong with us.: um,
2: No, us, us also I think in fact, we're, we're constantly uh, trying to manufacture ways to just stay in the house and never leave, so this yeah. is, this is quite fortunate but I mean you know it's a it's a super privileged position to absolutely to be able to enjoy that I mean we're lucky enough to have a really beautiful garden and a you know a nice kitchen and you know we don't our, our jobs are sort of allow for big gaps and we're okay you know so we should be so lucky but all that exactly. said I'm kind of in in you know enjoying getting to hang out with my two-year-old and you know so I'm pretty I'm pretty grateful for all of that and I'm
1: grateful Thanks. for my sourdough starter, like everyone else. <laughs> well, I mean, we have, we we have uh, we have a puppy that we got not uh-huh. for the quarantine, just the timing of it. A
2: quarantine it, puppy. A puppy is for
1: life, not just for quarantine. Just a, just a little quarantine, tiny. Yeah. Well, he's not <laughs> tiny. He's he's inor- he's a bit, he's going to be a huge dog.
2: Um, what, what variety? Just
1: a, a kind of no. He's. It's called an otterhound, and it's like a. It's an otterhound. An otterhound. Otter it's almost an extinct breed of dog that my wife, you know, has these very strong conservation uh, urges, and she was like, "Well, we have to. We want to save this breed, but it's a, it's it's a, like a cousin of the Irish wolfhound, and they were oh, bred, yeah. you know, a century ago to hunt otters, and it turns out the otter hunting game ain't what it used to be." So, no, you know,
2: really, I would have thought it was, was doing gangbusters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you notice yeah. there's no otters in your yard, so you're welcome, but uh, yeah, and so he, but they they get to be like 130 pounds, and so he's already almost 50 pounds at 13. Gosh. So, wow, yeah, so my you know, my wife, keeps oh, I
2: really want to, I'm just I'm desperate to look up otter hounds now, I
1: can't, they're uh, so adorable, they're just these like shaggy. <laughs> big old, like, lumbery, but very sweet mannered dogs. I will keep saying, well, this is just, you know, like, get ready. This is a precursor to when we have kids. And I said, yeah, but a baby isn't going to, like, try to bite my arm when it thinks it's playing. So I feel well, like... Well,
2: it depends what kind of baby you get. I, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> some babies are very mouthy. No, never
2: say never. So anything, anything's possible. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you're having fun with the two-year-old. I imagine some, some folks are probably like, "Oh my God, it just never stops," you know, with the kids running around. But it's been, it's been okay because two-year-olds don't understand what's going on.
2: No, two was she's really distra- distracting, and and she's she's I think she's thrilled that we're both at home, honestly, and uh. It's not, it's not too bad, you know, we have a garden chicken run around in and I think if we had more than one, it, it would, it would start to feel kind of overwhelming, I suppose. And I, I feel for my friends who, you know, have like, I have one friend who has three kids and another friend who has two kids and twins who are stuck in like a tiny place. And I just, you know, I just feel that we've got it really lucky. So I don't feel in any position to to complain about it. And honestly, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a juicy and delightful age being a two-year-old. So it's it's right. fun to watch it. Because usually I'm getting dragged off to go and do something. So you know, now I'm just like day in, day out just staring at her with a with a lot of joy.
1: Yeah, because what's crazy is that they like my friend has three kids, but he's actually having a he and his wife are having a really great time with them, and the oldest one is six. And he's starting to play drums. And it seems so weird because when you get older, six years goes by like that. But you realize that a person can literally go from a blob to like a fully formed creature with its own likes and (laughs) dislikes, And it's so surreal how quickly that happens. It just seems like a valuable time to be around a child from two to three when their personality really starts to take hold.
2: Exactly. Exactly. No, it's a... Yeah, it's, it's it's sort of magic on some level.
1: What sort of stuff is she into? Have you have you started to notice patterns of like? It's are there certain types of activities, or does she like? Oh, oh, yeah, she
2: loves she loves music. She always wants to put music on, and she loves doing um she loves doing dancing. She's got some she's got some serious moves already. I don't I I just I don't even know where to begin to describe. and she's she's getting into this really delightful stage where everything is um you know interesting given that both her parents are actors it's an interesting lesson for us because she's suddenly at this stage where she just slips into uh like role play games so completely and utterly and it's uh it's really interesting it's not learned you know we're not like you know doing that or anything suddenly you know she she watched uh she watched mary poppins and I, and suddenly it's like, you're Mary Poppins and I'm, I'm Nala from the Lion King and you are, you know, so she's casting everyone. And, and oh, that's
1: doing, fantastic. <laughs> she's yeah. not making you audition, right? You just get the offer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, actually, I think because of my accent, cause I'm, you know, I'm the anomaly in my family. I'm the one with the British accent. So I, I think she thinks I might be Mary Poppins. Which
1: is- <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's making the connection. Yeah. You might have to just show up one day with a, like a case and an umbrella, yeah, the petticoat. Oh no,
2: it's quite—it's quite useful. If I say spit spot very quickly, then she, she tends to do things quicker than than if I don't.
1: Interesting. She'll,
2: she'll go, oh yeah, yeah. But if I if I put on Mary Poppins' voice, it's like, yes, 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 Mary Poppins, and straight up. I don't know that'll last.
1: <laughs> I know my wife is very adamant. She's like, "We're when we have kids, we're definitely going to have a girl." And I was like, "Would you get to pick that?" She goes, "No, no, no, it's <laughs> it's going to happen." You know, she's so she's so excited. I mean, like she would be excited no matter what. You know, it's yeah. not like. But I think the idea. She's like, listen, little boys are terrors when they're like two to six years old. They just they're like tornadoes, and little girls are just very cool and sweet. And I go, yeah, but doesn't that
0: I don't doesn't know. It get harder
1: when they become <laughs> teenagers? Like, when's the like? Wh- I guess you're just when sort of like, yeah, I, yeah. I don't anymore. know. I don't
2: know. Isn't that? I also, I'm I'm slightly. Part of me sort of, I know that that's true and I have, I have friends who have, who have boys and they, I think they are a little more rambunctious than, than our one. But at the same time, there's, there's a little bit of me, there's a rebellious bit in me that's like, no, 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 we mustn't keep telling our girls that they're good and sweet and nice because it's so sort of, you know, it's, it's just gender stereotyping. And, you know, so I get a sort of perverse thrill every time she just wants to run around and like,
1: <laughs>
0: And
2: sort of roll in mud and scream. I'm like, Yes, come
1: on. (laughs) Well, that's definitely I mean, my wife is much more is the adventurous one in the relationship. So hopefully what you know, whatever kind of child we have, they inherit that from her. Because I'm the more (laughs) neurotic, like, I don't know, maybe we should not go do Uh things, you know. safer if we you know so hopefully they inherit i don't want that it's like those qualities you're like i hope that doesn't just pass on to the kid i hope they i hope that circumvents them
2: yeah 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 i know i know what you mean oh and she's <laughs> what's she saying just making noise i don't know what that was i'm I'm gonna try and keep my profile because she will definitely come and get involved in this interview if i uh,
1: you know what? That'll be fine. This is a very loose, by the way. There's no real structure to it. It's just a loose <laughs> conversation. I've had, I've had like people bring in their pets and kids and like, I mean, it's just, this is just a fun, I never thought I'd be able to do these via video conferencing. Cause I always thought, well, you have to be in front of people to have a real right. conversation. And this has really like opened up a whole world of, Oh wow. This actually kind of works. And it's sort of fun to get a peek into like, people's houses to people's houses and how they live and what their what their kind of space is
2: no i'm really enjoying your alligator
1: crocodile that's oh, yeah. a my wife and i both have a an affinity for weird vintage taxidermy and so we, oh you're we're, those, people. We're the, we're <laughs> those people well i mean like
2: no i'm i'm with you i think i, I all power to you, but that—that's pretty. That's pretty serious
1: piece. That one's pretty serious, and there's a giant, like bird-eating spider behind him, um, and then just sort of like the old oil paintings. I remember the first time, and a reading...
2: beautiful typewriter. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, no. yeah. Really old, a really old typewriter. Everything in our house is some kind of an antique, or we—I can tell you where everything came from. But I remember the first time I went to the Natural History that. Museum in London. I walked in, and I was like, "I want to live here. This is." And she's exactly the same way. We just have that weird, you know. I don't know what it is. We love your country.
2: <laughs> it's a good country. I'm I'm fond of it too.
1: There's just so there's just so much history, you know. Like I feel like so much of America, like our like the sort of the 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 part of American history that we live in now is very short, you know. When people uh-huh. came here and stole the land, but uh-huh. the. Um, and so, like, I find that we, we love to sort of borrow... I think that's why so many Americans are, like, Anglophiles. We want to sort of borrow more of the history from the older parts of the, of the, of the world.
2: Mm, yeah, I get it.
1: I do. What's your aesthetic? What, do you, what, do you, what would you say y'all's, y'all's design aesthetic is?
2: I think we're very, like... I'm, I feel bad because I'm, I'm only showing you this blue wall, so I just, <laughs> you can't exactly get much right. I'd say it's like a... <laughs> Look, here, I'll spin you around so you can see a bit oh, more. Oh, great. It's like uh, oh, oldie, yeah. lots of books mixed with a bit of modern, mixed with a bit of, you know, old
1: antiques, Love army. It. Yeah, there's, there's, some, there's, some, there's, some, there's some nice brass in there too. I see like a couple of brass.
2: We have a lot right. of antiques and then we have the odd bit of, no, it's mostly antiques
1: and old sort
2: of vintage vines.
1: And a lot of books. Have you, since you've been spending more time at home than normal, are you getting the itch to, like, oh, maybe we should rearrange, or maybe we should redo this, or are you just pretty happy with the way everything is?
2: Yeah, I spent I spent three days furiously rearranging uh, one of our <laughs> living rooms. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, for actors, you know, like you live a pretty nomadic lifestyle. You know, you got to pack up and move and live somewhere for you know one to three months. That becomes your home. I'm sure. Do you have a ritual for how you kind of arrange your temporary spaces when you're on location?
2: I do actually. I do. I'm really fussy about it. I'll always move things around to to, 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 to however it feels better or however I want to use the space. And I, one of the first things I always go out and buy is like you know a candle because I'm I get very prissy about smells in new places. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really it's really princess of me. I know, but.
1: <laughs> What's your candle smell? What's your candle smell?
2: Um you know I tend to go for a, the sandalwoody sort of yes. smoky
1: kind of earthy business Yeah very <laughs> nice I just bought a candle that smells like a new someone made a candle that smells like a new Mac computer like that smell like when you open- That sounds awful Why is he
2: you mean like sort of cellophane and saran wrap
1: and like... No, there's, just, there's, there's like a smell that like a brand new electronic device has. It's
2: like a kind of alloy smell. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a sort of alloy and plastic kind
1: of... They somehow of made smell. it very pleasant. I don't know. Maybe it's just... It's the
2: smell of corporations. Is <laughs> what it's like.
1: Well, when you frame it like that, yes, that is, that is not a great smell. <laughs> Something about it, though, like it just yeah. I know that's funny. You went very earthy, and I went very like technological.
2: No, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that the Mac computer smells. I'm, I'm just like I no, don't <laughs> I'm just trying
1: to have a. <laughs> not anymore.
2: Right, you, know, you know what's going to happen? Mac does not smell anymore.
1: I'm gonna find a way to send you one, and then that's
2: you, just too funny an idea. I really, I really want to smell it.
1: And then you can just send me a picture back of it in your trash. Like, well, I got (laughs) the candle and this is, thank you. But no, 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 thank you. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I wonder for, for actors. I mean, I, I, I always in general sort of have empathy. I sort of not, not, it's not that I feel bad, but acting is such a strange track because you generally can only do your job when someone else tells you you can do your job. You know what I mean? Like you, you, th- there's only so much you can do. Whereas, you know, like I can do podcasts on my own. I can do stand-up comedy on my own. I can, I can write on my own. And I always feel like actors are sort of imprisoned in this machine, but even more so now when it, you know, could be a while before people are going to theaters again or up, have television and films up and running again. So what, how are you coping with that? Or what are some things you're doing to sort of scratch the creative itch?
2: Um, I, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because this moment, it's like we're, we're really, actually really realizing what the truly indispensable services in our society are, the jobs are, the people who deliver things, the pe- you know, and nurses and hospitals, you know, just like we're, we're so sort of very aware of the people that have to, who are performing the essential services right now and have to keep working and you know acting is by <laughs> absolutely non-essential yeah. in that respect but people are also you know staying home watching things so there's this sort of there is this sort of tension between knowing that we can't go and work but also knowing that people are going to need things to stop them going insane at a certain point so, yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's sort of uh it's it's weird but uh, you know also to answer your question i don't I don't. If I'm being honest with you, I don't really think of myself. I don't define myself entirely as an actor, so I don't. Uh, I don't know that I am so disturbed by the lack of it in my life. I mean, I, I, it's something that I do and I love, and I, you know, it's it's how I pay the bills. It's how I've been paying the bills since I was tiny. You know, I was like, I was earning money when I was nine. You know, complicated other reasons, but you know that's been it's been a long time. So it's, but I I love it. But I also, you know, I I think of myself as someone who I don't know likes to look at the world and try and interpret it in various ways. And acting is a part of that. But also, you know, I I paint and I write and I like you know I I do other things and it's it's always been interesting to me because I don't know really what I define myself as. I know that doing all those other things makes me a better actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm any of those other things more than I am an actor because acting is the thing that everyone knows me for. But this time has, you know, been a sort of focusing moment for that. Cause I, I had time to go and, you know, sit in my funny attic and paint pictures and, and read books and drift downstairs and play the piano. Although Ida really hates it when I play the piano, she immediately comes and makes me stop. <laughs> maybe because I'm not very good, or maybe because the piano needs a tune, I'm not really sure. But <laughs> you know, and I'm also it's it's I'm also very lucky at the moment because just as this all happened, I was right in the final stages of of editing. Uh, the first movie that I directed and wrote. And so I've been able to keep doing that, like, remotely. Weird process, let me tell you, editing a movie remotely, but I have been able to keep doing it. Um, so I've been really busy, and it feels like a sort of incredibly creative time, you know. And I I, I feel a certain amount of, um, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for it. I also feel the sort of, you know, that sometimes the sort of, like, external... What am I trying to say here? And backtrack. What I'm trying to say is I think that there you, you know, I think that previous moments there was a lot of achievement focus, and there's something interesting about this moment because we're being forced to think about what is actually fulfilling. Mm-hmm. Um because the markers of achievement have, have altered somewhat. Right, right. And I and that has been really more interesting for me than sort of like output you know it's not like oh i've I painted four pictures today and i've written four scripts and i'm halfway through my novel it's like you know what mm. on a day to day basis is is making me feel fulfilled right. as a person and it's and it's and it's not actually driven by the need to 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 go out and hear the applause after performing whatever it is <laughs> it's like right. it's You know, have I, have I, I don't know what it is, the small things. And that's something, that's something really valuable.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Look, this situation sucks and it's a weird, surreal thing. But if we are for, forced to be at home, can we be reflective? And can we get to know ourselves and then ask ourselves questions that we probably dodge most of the time because we're going, 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 distracting, distracting, distracting with all of the external world stuff, like you said. And, and it. It, it, it is a time to maybe ask yourself like, well, did I like what I was doing before? Is it possible? Can I explore anything else? Who am I? It, it is having to face a lot of the existential stuff that I, some of the bigger ticket items that I think we're able to not have to deal with a lot of the time. And I think it's great. It's very healthy that you do all these things and that there isn't so much emphasis on, your identity being tied to just being an actor that you do all these other things too. And, and I'm so, I'm I'm very happy for you that you were able to finish the thing that you were directing. Yeah,
2: no, I am too. I got, I was really, Oh boy, that timeline. I was very lucky because I know people who are right in the middle of shooting something and you know, it, it got stopped. My husband was about to start something, got stopped. So it's, it's, yeah, I really, I really lucked out. I mean, And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Really
1: like that. What were you, what was the project you were directing? I mean, if you can talk about it at all.
2: No, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it a little bit. Um, it's still, you know, it's still in process. So, um, it's a, it's a script that I've started work on a, a long, long time ago. And it's based on a, a really extraordinary novella by a woman called Nella Larson, who was a, um who was a biracial african american uh novelist in the Harlem renaissance who wrote not a lot um and then sort of disappeared She's quite an enigmatic figure um it's a book called passing um and it's an extraordinary book about two two black who are two pale two light skins black women who are able to pass as white and one has crossed the color line in 1929 Harlem entirely and lives with a, a, a white man who doesn't know that she's black and the other one lives in Harlem and has not done that and they were at high school together and at the beginning of the film they run into each other having not seen each other since high school. Um... And the film, the, you know, the novella is really about a, a, a lot of things. It's not, it's really about the, 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 the many different ways in which we put on, perform our identities on some level, or how our inner lives do or don't match up with the projection that we put out into the world.
1: Which is so applicable to the world, Today, It's such a contemporary yeah. theme when, you know, with social media, where we're able to put out this, you know, performative version of ourselves or this identity or creating an image that may or may not be who we are, who we want, mm-hmm. how we want to be seen. I mean, it sounds incredibly poignant.
2: Yeah, it's, it is very, it is very, uh, it feels very, it feels very modern. I mean, it's about a lot of things. It's about the performance of femininity. It's about, gender it's about sexuality it's about race it's about it's a it's a it's a very complex story um you know and i was attracted to it because i you know i i I present like an english rose type but my you know my my mother is from detroit and she's biracial and my grandfather likely passed and more than that, his parents might have even passed because, you know, so he might have been born of two biracial people who, you know, it's like I come from a long line of, of this particular story in, in American history. It's part of my heritage. And, you know, I'm not, I suppose the sort of, the kind of the end point of, of, of passing, of white passing in someone's history is, is someone like me, who's not really, doesn't really understand their heritage and doesn't really, and wasn't brought up identifying as anything other than white. Mm-hmm. And it's a, you know, I have a sort of complex relationship with that, I suppose. So I have very personal reasons for making this and I feel very moved by the story, but I also have creative reasons for making it. You know, the, I, it made kind of sense... To me, and I, I, I could understand the characters, and I could understand how I thought the film should be made. So, you know, I think the film—I don't know—hopefully, it speaks for itself. I'm, I'm, I'm growing proud of it
1: day by day. Has it? Did it? Did it? Was it able to provide a gateway into understanding your own identity, your own history? Um...
2: Yeah, I don't know because it's still, you know, it's still 1929. It's still, it's still things that I don't that I that kind of removed in a way. I don't, it's, um, but yes, I think what it did principally was it, it was a sort of way of blowing open any, any remaining, uh, any remaining sort of hiddenness around the topic. What's the word I'm looking for? Hiddenness isn't a word. You know what I mean? It's just. It might be a word by the way. there's a certain amount of like you know growing up in the kind of you know there's a certain amount of like not talking about it and like is this or isn't it like I didn't know for a long time it's like you know are we aren't we what is this is it is it what's the history we don't know maybe it was this maybe it was that you know and there's a certain amount of like I don't know for me this was an act of sort of rejoicing in it and saying yes Mm-hmm. this is it. And I can't, and I'm not, I'm not in any way denying it and I'm not in any way hiding from it and I'm celebrating it, but I'm also appreciating the complexity of it.
1: And the, the,
2: yeah, just all of the, all of it
1: really. Well, the best stories are, have a, have some sort of a personal drive, like some sort of a personal stake or some sort of a personal story. And so, because it, that's gonna give it the the lay that that sort of unspoken layer that when people watch something, they they really connect with it because it feels like it's it's rooted in something other than just, oh, this was a topic that someone was interested in, you know? Right.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that is it. I mean, when I first read the book, I was, you know, I was in my I mean, I wrote the first version of this script like fifteen years ago. So I was I was right in the beginning, you know, I just started spending more time in America, just of, you know, was thinking about where my American family came from. And I was just thinking about, all this. And I read this book and I was just knocked over by the characters because I felt like I, I knew them. I felt like I understood them and I had no right to. I had no, there was nothing in my experience. I was like, I don't understand why I should feel so close to these characters. And I recognize aspects of my mother in some of them. I recognize aspects, you know, it's just, it just felt, very, I had a very strong reaction to it. And I knew that I had to, you know, I just had to sit down and and have a go at writing the script as a way of understanding that.
1: (laughs) And did you, was it the kind of script that you would write and then put away for a couple of years and then come back to, or were you trying to get it made the whole time? Or did you, I guess. Oh, no, I wasn't
2: trying to get it made the whole time. I was terrified of it. I mean, it was a very, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty ambitious. I mean, I, I wrote it and I, I knew, like, after the first, the first screenplay, I knew a handful of shots that are in the movie, Mm -hmm. um, like, more than that, actually, and I knew exactly how it should look, I knew that it had to be in black and white, I knew that it had to be, it had to have a kind of harking back to a, an older style of filmmaking, um, kind of from the 40s and 30s which is also something that's very personal for me because that's that's my I'm a complete uh cinephile about films made from like the dawn of filmmaking through to like you know the late 1960s when everyone starts loving film so (laughs) and I have been obsessed with black and white films forever and I grew up as a kid I was obsessed with women like Betty Davis and Barbara Stanwyck and Catherine Hepburn and, and like Myrna Lloyd, these were my, these were my women. These were my idols. And there was something about this story that reminded me of that era of filmmaking when women were like up front and center stories about complicated women and their interactions with each other. Um, And i so I felt so so strongly that to see a, a movie that that had that placement in in cinematic history, but but was a, had two you know two black bodies at the centre of it, which wasn't allowed in that era, mm-hmm. was really exciting to me. So I knew exactly how I should make it, and and I also knew that that was so ambitious, like that level of like the kind of film that I wanted it to be, um, all of those things, I knew that it couldn't possibly be my first film. And then, you know, I got older, I had a baby, I started to get, you know, feel a bit like, well, you know, this is actually, the, this is the one that I know all the shots, I know how I want to make it, this should be the first film that I make. Right. And I want to direct forever. Sorry,
1: this interview is like coming all about this and it really no no, no no it should be, <laughs> this is just a conversation and this should this should be about whatever i you know this is one of the reasons why i like being able to see people because i can see the joy in your face when you're talking about it and it's it's actually making me excited to see the thing when it's done because i can see how. i hope so
2: i hope are. so yeah I, i'm yeah it's 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 you know i'm pretty i'm pretty proud of it i mean and so much of it has nothing to do with me I mean I happen to have some of the greatest actors in this film that are around today I mean Tessa Thompson and Ruth Negger are the stars and they are just extraordinary in it I mean both of them it's kind of uh, really everyone is just going to be knocked flat out by both of their performances are you in it at all? Um, no 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 no, I'm not in it god no 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 (laughs) <laughs> um, no, and they're so brilliant. And also, Andre Holland is in it and he is phenomenal, phenomenal. Um, and Bill Camp and Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, yeah i'm just i'm lucky i'm real lucky like i have great actors in it and that's half the battle honestly but yeah i mean so just to answer your question quickly i'm rambling but like it, it went in a draw because it felt too ambitious and then when i got over that and started showing it to people if i'm being completely honest you know it would be well this is a this is a fascinating story and all the rest of it but you'll never get it financed um and then that went on for years, you know. I, I attached Tessa and Ruth. Attached, like they, I met up with them, and they said, "We want to make this film. We're behind you one hundred percent." Forever grateful to the two of them for believing in me, and that it was, it was, it was a rough road. Um, you know, partially because it's black and white, and nobody wants to finance films for black and white, especially by first-time directors. And, you know, it was it was a big ask, but also because it's. It's about two black women, and it's the landscape is changing, thank god it's like it is changing, but it it has taken a long time, and it hasn 't changed that much you know it wasn 't a slam dunk and it and it should have been because um, it should have
1: been <laughs> yeah but 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 I, but I think it's such a great lesson and when people tell you when they reject your ideas for whatever reason they don't know what they're talking about. They just don't have the, they don't see what you see in your head. They don't feel what you feel in your heart about it. So when you know, when you know in your gut that something is right and something belongs in this world, you know, it's, it's the the, the rough road is, it still can lead you to manifest that thing, even if people are like, well, you'll never get this made. Well, I will get this made. And you just don't see it. And, and you did. And it's such a great lesson for anyone you know, just looking at this 15-year journey for anyone who has an idea that they know in their gut is right, and other people just don't have the frame of reference for it, or they just don't have the vision yeah. for it. So they, it's easy for people to just swap things down because they just, you know. Okay. But then you'll make it, and then it'll become some complete redefining thing, and then people go, oh, yeah, we need to make movie movies like that. And like, yeah, well, before you said, oh, no, 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 you know, I was just like, no, nah, no, no, go fuck yourself. Before you said... <laughs> So it must have been... Uh, yeah, you'd, you'd
2: be surprised how often I got like, oh, it's a film about two, it's about two women. Oh, great. Like, you know, who 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 do you have in mind to play the white guy that's in it for two scenes? Like, no joke.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Well, I'm, I just, I applaud you for sticking to it and making it happen regardless of any of that rough road. I'm sure it makes it that much more rewarding having... Oh, it does. It really does.
2: I mean, I, I feel made. like, yeah. Because then
1: yeah. you get that sense of like, well... Yeah, who got the film made that you said couldn't get made? I mean, that first day on set after this entire 15-year journey, how surreal was that?
2: Totally surreal. <laughs> it's a funny story. More surreal by the fact that I had, like, a stomach flu. Oh,
1: no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I
2: mean, I always imagined that my first day on a movie set as a director would be very surreal. Um, but I had spent... 24 hours uh, like really really ill and throwing up and I was directing we were doing a scene in a car and I was on like a, the truck behind the car that you know the, the rig that's holding the car and you're in the truck and you're sort of like talking to a walkie to try and talk to everyone about yes everything in the shop and 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 my producer was holding a bucket <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was delirious so I don't know I feel I got slightly cheated out of that moment
1: <laughs> well or or when it's all done you can go I fucking earned this <laughs> across every level <laughs> I earned this <laughs> you just be going on talk shows they'll ask you questions about it you go no 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 you don't understand I earned this you don't understand but it is those things in life that I think that we you know there's this this idea that you 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 really fully appreciate things when there is um, discomfort in the process. Mm -hmm. Like what a gift discomfort can be Mm -hmm. because not only does it show you what you're made of, it gives you such a tremendous growth curve. And then like what an appreciation, you know, coming on the other side of this, what an appreciation you'll have for what you you would have appreciated it no matter what. But the fact that you had to go through all these things to get paid. What <laughs> yeah, I, guess. I mean, thing.
2: I'd rather not have been throwing up in a bucket, but I see what you're saying.
1: <laughs> I also think that your design aesthetic is a very positive. I think that does tell that is telling for like the kind of because, again, this room you showed me has such a cool vibe to it you know, just the color and the different styles of furniture that all, like, talk to each other and the composition Mm -hmm. of the furniture. When you, um, I think that really does say, like, what type of, like, I think the film's going to feel really... Obsessive, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Obsessive. (laughs) Are you an obsessor over details?
2: Yes, I am, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs)
1: terribly. Like to a degree where you feel like, do you feel like things are never done, or do you are you able to be satisfied with things, or do you feel like it's always the oh, it could have been a millimeter more this way?
2: I think that in in the past I've been that person that has never been satisfied with anything, but I think I've I think I've gotten over that. I don't know. It's like a, it feels like a sort of uh, I don't know. Certainly, you know, like when it comes to acting, I always. You know, there was a sort of romanticism about those actors that you hear about that are like, I never watch my work. You know, I, I couldn't possibly. And I was and and part of me was like, yes, no, I can't either. It's awful. Oh, God, I can't bear to look at myself. And then I don't know, I got older and I was like, you know what? It's not just me that made this thing. Other people are involved in this and I owe it to them to like sit through and, and actually try and look at it objectively and not just look at it for all my faults or you know, the fact that I have eye bags that one day or whatever. <laughs> I, you know, actually try and appreciate it for a piece of piece of work that a lot of people put a lot of effort into. And I so I you know I try to I try to let go of my perfectionism at a certain point. I mean it serves me to to a to a to a certain level, but then there's also got to be a point where you have to let go of it and
1: just, you know, appreciate it and let it be. That is that is a hard thing to overcome too, especially because, yeah. you know, I think part of the reason why people do get obsessive over things is, is, is to, I don't know, to at least feign some sense or, or at least be able to tell them, people tell themselves they have some sense of control. And exactly. when yeah. you're in a business that is so volatile... You've got no control. <laughs> you no control over anything. I mean, no one in life, you know, like, I think what we're realizing now is that we don't have as much control as... We don't have control
2: over anything. No. No, and, and honestly, I think that's one of the joys of being an actor perversely or masochistically or whatever, but like it's, there is a sort of, there is a sort of joy about turning up to work and being like, well, I'm just going to give you everything I've got. And mm-hmm. then, uh, then I'm going to go home and you're yeah. just, you are just, it's all yours. Like I am, it's not my business what you do with it. I right. don't, you know, I don't have to deal with it. This is, I'm just here to enjoy and do. And then I leave, you know, and there, is, there is a kind of joy about that.
1: Yes, but then where is your job as the director? Is the complete opposite.
2: Complete opposite.
1: <laughs> oh, you have to know everything. You have to answer everything. Yeah. And you have to decide everything. I mean, you're the last word on all of it, you know? Like, to me, directing always sounded like a fun thing until I think about the editing process and I go... Too too much choice. Like there are a million ways I could fuck this thing up, and I just, I it just stresses me out too much. That that stresses me out too much.
2: No, it's it is like a it is like a sort of a gigantic um, Rubik's cube or something. I don't know, but I do feel it is a bit of a Rubik's cube. Like you can do all these variations, and then suddenly something clicks, and you're like, oh, this is this is what it's meant to be, and this is what it's been. Like the film is going to be its own thing you can't really force it to be something else that was in your head or you can't really force it to be, you know, something that becomes, you know, something else or it it has its own thing, which is sort of fascinating actually. But, you know, I I say that, but also I obsessively storyboarded the whole thing, like with, and was editing the, the, you know, this is where this is going to, this edit's going to be. And there's like, there's a bit of a movie that is like that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you, you also, it, it is, I would imagine there's probably that balance between you can plan something to a T, but then you get there on the day and it's like, well, this thing happened. And now we have to figure out how to improvise or be flexible because we just oh, don't okay. have, we just don't have the time.
2: Or to, the money. Or like the money. Don't... You, P.S. like the 15 year struggle I still made the film in black and white and it's still you know and a lot of people would have given me a lot more money if I'd made the thing in color you know there we, it was a very very small independent film and there are so many factors that you can't control without that because you you literally have 15 minutes to shoot x y and z and it doesn't matter that you know you didn't get the whatever it was or there's a someone bicycles past in a in a modern outfit well like,
1: you know thank, I, I i imagine when the lighthouse came out where you were like oh my god thank god a black and white movie that people are you know because it, you it's
2: know, doing like, well in the box it's like shot
1: in an in an instagram square and it's black and white and no and
2: i'm four th- uh, four three not which isn't one one but i'm like old movie sort of little skinnier
1: right. not widescreen right right um, right
2: yeah, so, yes, I was. I was also... But then it's, it, there's, a, there's been a precedent just recently. I mean, like, you know, uh, both those films, Ida and Cold War, by the Polish director, um, um, yes, have, like, both done that extraordinarily. And so, but yeah, it doesn't really... Then there's Roma. I don't know. There's been a trend for black and white films recently.
1: Yeah. Do you... Have you, ever, have you ever seen a movie called The Big Picture?
2: It's ringing a bell, but I don't
1: think I have. What's that? Nineteen ninety, maybe. Uh, Christopher Guest directed it. Aha! Uh-huh. Kevin Bacon is in it, and Michael McKean, and Martin Short. Oh! And it's the it's it's one of my favorite movies because it is a it is almost. It's about this kind of thing where this kid out of film school he goes to like AFI and he wants uh-huh. to make this really personal black and white intimate story and he starts going through the studio process and they're like. Wait, the whole whole movie's in black and white? No, 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 no. And then then one of the executives just says this really stupid thing like, but all the projectors at the theaters are in color. They can't even show (laughs) this. And so they convince him it's just the story of this young kid who's Kevin Bacon, who just starts kind of like making allowances. And then all of a sudden his movie just becomes this totally shitty thing based on all these studio notes. (laughs)
2: I've got to say that. It sounds like a little too on the nose. I think I might find it quite
1: (laughs) (laughs) painful. But it is about sort of like, look, you know what you know and you believe what you believe and stick to your guns when you can and really, you know, like follow your heart. And it's such a fun, weird sort of live action and the characters are kind of cartoony, but it just, it's such a sweet little movie about, you know, about this journey, I I think, you know, as you're sitting around, it might be a fun movie for you to watch. It's called The Big Picture. Yeah, I'm definitely
2: going to go check that out. Thank you very much for that.
1: No, of course. But even back then, that was a time when people were essentially just making movies for theaters. And now there are so many different platforms that I feel like, in as much as it has splintered audiences, it's also freed up creators to not have to try to, you know, make the argument of like, oh, this is going to make three hundred million dollars at the yeah, box office.
2: I hope so. I mean, I think it strikes me that you know, every everyone keeps sort of suggesting that the only films that people are going to see in the cinema are, you know, are the big superhero movies or tentpole movies, whatever you want to call it. But also, I mean, conversely, I think also people want to go and see art house movies more because they offer the same, the equivalent of a tentpole movie in for aesthetics or, you know, for art and people right. want to have that experience in the cinema which is why places like, you know, Film 4 and still a, I hope after this will still be thriving and, you know, these art house cinemas all over the country still exist yeah. um, if we didn't have that. You know, and you look at a, a movie like, uh, uh, what was it recently? Portrait of a Lady on Fire that did really well and you're like, well, people want there is an appetite for that too. And I think that's really exciting actually. And now that you can see everything in all these formats, no, it's interesting that you bring that up actually, because I remember someone saying to me years ago when I was trying to get passing made, you know, and they were saying, they were trying to talk me out of the black and white thing. And they were saying, well, you know, the reason why you can't make films in black and white is because they won't sell to TV networks because people will think there's something wrong with their television. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're going to love the big picture, I swear to God, it's full of <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, and,
2: it <laughs> and that might be true, but I just think now, anyway, they've got, TV networks have got a far bigger problem in the shape of Netflix and Amazon and everything else. So I mean, like, what, what are really? they going to worry about a black and white
1: movie? <laughs> but I also, I think there's an interesting, it's going to be interesting to see how we come out of quarantine and how that changes how we socialize publicly, because I feel like we, you know, being creatures of convenience, there were less and less reasons to leave our homes, and it's, and mm. you know we were already seeing and, you know like this idea that oh well, people will only go see event movies in theaters. I wonder if now that the now that the universe has kind of said to people like oh you don't want to leave your home fuck you now you can't leave your home so enjoy it you know enjoy. Like, yeah
2: that, maybe it's gonna
1: people make a whole wanna go out. Of cigars where when we come out of theater we're gonna be like i need to go to a theater i don't care what's playing i just need to be around other people i need to go yeah
2: i'm nearly sure that's true i mean you know i've got an interest in in theater theater as well obviously because i come from my, my father was a theater director and i come from that background as an actor as well and it's it's always been interesting to me that in all these discussions in the movie industry about getting panicked about what Netflix is going to do, what home cinemas are going to do, and what this and that is going to do, you know, always be like, but yes, but the theater still exists, mm-hmm. you know, like, and and that's been threatened for years by everything, by movies, by radio, by you know, it was, and yet it still exists because people still do actually want to congregate and have a. Communal experience and a group experience, and it's a different way of digesting culture, and it's also a it's a way of checking in with the culture on mass and being like, how are we receiving something? How are we, you know, thinking about something right now? And 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 I don't think it's going to go away. I think people are always going to want to go to the cinema. I agree. They're always going to want to go see plays, and I think it will be interesting when this is over. I think the appetite for things might change you know i i really i really do i think like the i don't know the the refocusing that this is forcing us to do it might it might mean that the appetite for for something more contemplative Mm -hmm. might be there i don't know it's like all a different you know people are like you said earlier when we were chatting about like oh it's kind of your there is a focus on everyone's focused on art right now a little bit, you know, like to keep themselves entertained. There's like people are reading books, people are doing all these things and it might just sort of refocus what you enjoy or what you want or what you think you want or I don't know, I, I don't know. Things like, things like this always shift the culture in some way. It's going to be interesting what's
0: going to happen. This podcast is supported by FedEx. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The Blurring Sponge Tip Applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation, and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, art is just a re-expression of, you know, stimuli, like whatever is sort of being fed into the machine is going to get re-expressed and repackaged somehow. And so... What does that mean? I mean, obviously, there will be some on the nose expressions of all of this, but then, but what are the subtle undertones and what are the like, what's the what's sort of the subtext of everything and how will that express? And will that, you know, will there be a bunch of movies that are that have a certain, you know, color palette or like emotional tone (laughs) that is sort of subconscious because it just like, you know we're just kind of these hay balers and like you put the shit in and it's going to come out and like, what is that? What does that look like? It's going to be really interesting to see how art is re-expressed, but we're social creatures. And I think what I'm sort of realizing is that in as much as it feels like we're connecting with other people via email, social media, you know, texting or whatever, we are going to crave like the IRL, the sort of like really gathering with other people and realizing Oh, this is actually what being social means. It's actually yeah. gathering together with friends or contemporaries and exchanging yeah, ideas. This is meaningful, yeah, life. yeah. No, so, what I what
2: yeah, no. I was talking. I was talking on on the Zoom or whatever to my one of my half sisters the other day, who lives in Wales and teaches uh, theatre. She's a theatre designer and an artist, and she teachers and she's been doing it on zoom but she said to me something so interesting she was like but she was like we do these board meetings where we decide what's going to happen but because we're doing these meetings like this there's no room for the extraneous chat where so many of the decisions are actually made like Mm -hmm. the chat that happens over a coffee instead it's bullet points of like we we this is on the agenda and this is on the agenda and it's done I thought it was really interesting because I'm not doing that sort of thing, but she is. And it just made me think about
1: that. Well, yeah. And it's also the, the the challenge with that kind of communication dynamic is that when you have a large group of people, when you're in like a room, when you're in, you know, people can sort of jump in and there, you can be cross-talk and talk. But when you have a bunch of people in a video conferencing meeting, it's really only one. Per, it's a lot of, oh, no, I'm sorry. You talk. No, no, no. I'm sorry. You go. Oh no wait you go you know like there's yeah unless you
2: unless you have a birthday party for a toddler we did a we did a zoom birthday party 2 days ago for for Ida Tam too and uh, it was just a heap
1: of her toddler friends
2: screaming and nobody nobody had the nobody had the little green box
1: did <laughs> did the, the 2 year olds did they recognize like could did they no. recognize?
2: No, I didn't know what was going on There was just a lot of squealing it was great it was truly it was really it was really something it felt like a it felt like an art
1: installation honestly <laughs> <laughs> what a strange experiment was it basically just the other parents like uh, yes. <laughs> sorry I don't know they just it was actually it was actually, it
2: was actually the best at sort a of birthday party that for, for for me and Morgan that we could have had because it was all of our friends from several different time zones with kids. You know, That's it was my nice. friends in England that have kids and friends in you know LA that have kids and friends in New York that have kids. and all on the same. It was pretty funny.
1: Yes, yeah, no cleanup <laughs> that you do not have, no, to- and no uh-huh. cleanup, and
2: Absolutely. there was no uh, there was no catastrophe, and there was no tears or crying or cleanup.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that might be the one thing that sticks around after quarantine. It's like yeah, we're just going to do a Zoom birthday party. It's yeah. <laughs> just easier you know no there's no liability <laughs> you know? uh,
2: yeah virtual party bags uh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'll send you a gift card there's <laughs> you know, an amazon gift card you pick out what you want you no know? yeah i don't know i mean it it is it, it, it for kids who i would imagine tend to want to be around other kids to socialize it must be kind of strange for some of them too
2: definitely definitely yeah. I mean, our kid mostly hangs out with us, so I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you, Are you on a regimented schedule? Are you able to have, like, a regimented schedule where you... Is everything pretty structured, or is it sort of like... Oh, no. So, no. No, no, no.
2: We're not very good at that. It's quite it's quite loosey-goosey around here. Yeah. But, I mean, she does... She does sort of... does inflict a sort of schedule you know like if it weren't for her i suspect we'd probably just be lying on the the couch watching a a lot of television
1: (laughs) not knowing what day it is (laughs) what meal is it i don't know does it matter all the days are one big day essentially it's basically you take a series of naps and you get up to eat and then you you
2: yeah who knows what time it is anymore or day or anything
1: yeah you go back to sleep. So I just have a couple more questions before uh, before we wrap this up. N- number one, I love to ask directors, like, what do you think the job of a director is? How do you see directing? Because everyone has a slightly different take on it.
2: God, I don't know. If I get to do it again, ask me, because it might shift. But I think right now, the thing that... I mean... I think it's making sure that everybody knows the film that you're trying to make, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's because it's that felt like the job so much of the time. It's just a constant trying to explain to everyone the thing that was in my head. You know, whether it's sort of the art department or the costume designs or the It's just again and again and again. You just keep and you sound like a broken record and you sound crazy to yourself, but you just have to keep doing it. again and again and again and you know and everybody it's just sort of making sure that everyone so they're all on the same page because things really go off pieced I think when everyone's making a different film that doesn't mean that you don't allow everyone full creative freedom but they have to know what the movie is that they're making and then they can bring to it whatever the hell they want and it will be delightful but if everyone thinks they're making a different film then it the, the train leaves the, you know, goes off the rails.
1: Would you say that's the thing that you, that was that sort of the biggest lesson of this experience?
2: Um, yeah, well, I had a, like a, Angela Robinson, who directed me in a film called Professor Martin and mm-hmm. the Wonder Woman, um, and Oren Mouverman, who directed me in a film called The Dinner.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, they're both great directors, and they were both executive producers on it. And they would both give me little tidbits. And it was Angela, actually, who was like, just keep repeating yourself. It doesn't matter how crazy you (laughs) sound, just keep repeating yourself. So I felt like I knew that one going in. But I was really, the lesson was that it was so
1: true. Right. I
2: was like, you know, and so, yeah,
1: yeah. That's a good note. I've actually never heard anyone say that before. And it makes a lot of sense because you, especially when you are like, you know, when you're sort of leading a team, if you're, the, the clarity, like you have to communicate with such clarity because sometimes you can get something back and you go, oh, I wonder why they thought this was the thing that I was trying to say.
0: I'm
2: yeah, just- <laughs> well, no, and God knows, I've worked with directors as an actor who who for some reason just assume that everyone knows exactly what's in their head. And it's quite clear that nobody does. And you're like, (laughs) you know, including me. And I'm like, what, but, (laughs) you know, and it it doesn't, and it's hard. It's really hard. It's hard for the actors too, because you want to, you know, you want to hit the right tone. you want to know what the, you know, and it's, and it's hard to communicate that actually. It's hard to sort of get it across.
1: Well, you're lucky that you've been on that side of it, so you understand, like, oh, well, now they're on, so I need to make sure that everyone understands, because that is a...
2: Yeah, it's really hard, it's like it's like that thing about colour, you know, that no one sees colour the same way, it's like, you know, I can sit here describing to you how I see green forever, and it still might not create the same green in your head that is in my head, or whatever. you know, it, that's, that's not quite the right...
1: That's, you know. No, listen. I was a philosophy major, and that <laughs> fucked up my brain the first time. I that was introduced to me, like my like in the my basics of philosophy class, like when the entry level, where they're like, well, you know, I don't know that when I say a table that you see the same table, and I was like, oh my god, I can't even fucking process that. <laughs> like it just that idea of trying to understand what someone else understands an object, a reference point to be. Yes, you're absolutely right. It, it's a wonder that we're able to even organize as a society and have some right. common agreements on things yeah, at, exactly. all. Yeah. at all. Yeah. What are yeah. you? La- lastly, sort of, what are you kind of like? Just, I just want to. I'm trying to give people as many sort of positive nuggets to chew on mm. as as we're sort of navigating all this strangeness. Um, the it just just ways that you stay joyful and positive and, and inspired and happy and hopeful. Is there any, is there a mantra or is there just sort of a general outlook or something that you're able to fall back on for, you know, when people kind of feel weird?
2: You know, our, our worlds have all got smaller in some way across the board, like whatever your world is, everyone's has been forced to be smaller. And I think that, possibly the only way to really like survive this is to take some pleasure in the small things Mm -hmm. that you do still have access to. And, you know, I I think that's why everyone's cooking all the time. And, (laughs) but there's something very satisfying about, you know, Oh, I'm going to, you know, hand make pasta today and look at it. It's like Or you just look out the window and you're like, whatever you see out the window to, to try and find some joy in that. But it's, it's, I'm not, you know, some people's windows are better than others. God knows, it's that's not a, the that's probably awful advice to someone. But, no, but I the think just a small, this like taking I don't know, taking some finding some joy in the small things that surround you. I think is probably the best way to get through this.
1: And, and I, I think, think we definitely had. I think not all people, but I think by and large, a lot of people had lost sight of that. And I certainly don't think that our culture necessarily fosters appreciating the small things and appreciating the life stuff. But those are all the things that, you know, when you talk to people who are older and wiser, those are always the things that they go like, yeah, I just fucking, I just got rid of all the shit that I was obsessing over that didn't mean anything. And just focused on the smaller things and appreciated the moment. And so hopefully we're in a, in a, in a state of, of transitioning into more of a, of a wisdom, maybe there are more wisdom nuggets that we can take.
2: Yeah, wisdom, wisdom nuggets are probably always good. I, I'm, I'm all for wisdom nuggets. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was so wonderful to chat with you.
2: No, it was really nice chat. Very nice
1: chat. When does, first of all, you, you, you probably don't know when Passing is coming out yet.
2: Yeah, I know. I spent the whole time talking about Passing and it's really not, the
1: press junket for it um <laughs> it matter people can see tales from the loop now on yes Amazon. they
2: can see tales from the loop now i don't know when passing is coming out we've got to, we've got to you know play it at festivals hopefully we'll get into some festivals and it's got to sell it's you know early stages and all
1: that stuff so but um, tales from the loop is a fun sort of it's an it's like a sci-fi anthology series but it but rather than being a bunch of disconnected stories they all sort of center around this one experience that the yeah is.
2: and it's and it's very it's actually very. Um, subtle and philosophical and sort of all the things that we were just chatting about actually in terms of it's it's slower paced and contemplative and it's but it's also escapism but it's meaningful escapism so I think it's quite good viewing for this moment in many ways.
1: Thank you so much Rebecca it was an absolute pleasure talking it's to you. Pleasure talking
2: to you too thank you.
1: I wish you all the safety and health in the world and, you too. Uh, and I and I'm legitimately excited to see your movie when it comes out. It really sounds thank you. amazing. Thank um, you so much. Thanks there. Take care.
2: Bye
0: bye. Bye. ID 10T scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels. There are murders in all of the books. That she was playing them out in real life.